Welcome to The Table. Welcome to The Table is a podcast put on by the good people of Pulpit Rock Church in Colorado Springs, Colorado. I'm your host, Thomas Thompson, and with me today is my co-host, J.M. Hello, Thomas. Hey, how's it going? It's go- you know what? It's going great. Well, this podcast is about us having conversations about things that we find interesting or enjoyable or sometimes even nerdy. And uh, what I'm really loving in this first season is that we're talking about something that, for me, has all three of those things in it, and it's the Bible. I'm I'm right there with you. And we've been talking about some different uh uh, aspects of the Bible, how we understand it, how we use it, how we read it. But today we wanted to get into something about how we got it. And for that, we're going to talk about the word canon. So canon basically just means measuring stick. Uh, canon with one end, as you pointed out earlier. Canons yeah. with two ends, something completely different. Yeah. What's your what's your way of remembering that? Uh, the extra end is for the extra bang. Okay, that's good. Yeah. Yeah, so that's that's a real canon. Then we're talking about the canon. Yeah, and it's Latin, uh, Latin for measuring stick, and um, it's basically kind of this decision of wh- what's in the Bible and why, and why don't we have you know thirty books in the New Testament or or four books in the New Testament? Why do we have twenty seven? Mm-hmm. And uh, where we're going to focus on a little bit today is just uh, kind of the New Testament. But uh, how we got to this question of why why do we have the books we have? Mm-hmm. I mean, this is something that comes up. Every every five or six years, right, somebody somewhere discovers the Gnostic Gospels and yeah. is like, either we need to include this or they hold it up. And the last big time was sort of the Dan Brown era. It was like, well, you don't have everything and you've made a conscious right. decision not to include these. And it's, it, it can be it can be difficult to say, well, wait a second. It says gospel in it. It says gospel of Thomas. Why mm-hmm. doesn't why isn't that included in in our Bible. And yeah. so we thought we'd just take some time to talk about it. Yeah, I want to talk about that. And then I want to talk a little bit about just how how can we trust that the the, the writings are, you know, when, when Mark says this is what happened, how do we know that happened? Mm-hmm. And so we'll, we'll kind of get into that. So after Christ died and rose again and the, the church has begun and the events of the Gospels and Acts had happened, uh, as time is going forward, a number of different things started happening that, that started to raise this question of that we're talking about of what what is what is the the account? Uh, mm-hmm. What is the truth? Uh, first of all, um, a number of the eyewitnesses, the apostles to the ministry of Jesus, started to die off. Right. And uh, one of my favorite books I've ever read is D Day by Stephen Ambrose. He's a historian, and he uh, kind of had this similar thought. It was it was a certain number of years after um, uh, World War II, and he thought all these World War II participants and survivors are dying off. And if I don't go around and interview them and capture their stories, they'll be lost forever. And so he did that and basically kind of created this book, D-Day, which uh, was an amazing account of what happened. Well, that was happening also with um, the stories of Jesus. You know, people, Peter dies and uh, uh, Matthew dies and some of the other eyewitnesses dies. And so uh, Mark, actually, we're studying the book of Mark at our church, Mark actually is one of the first guys to say, I need to capture this story. And so he set out to begin to, we what we understand is interview Peter, in a sense, to uh, to capture the story and make yeah. sure he had it. He did this about 30 years after the death of Christ. Right. And you have this, you see it in Paul's writings, right? It is not what I read. Paul does not say, and as I read, I now pass on to you. He says, as it was told to me, I now share with you. Yeah. And there was this, whether it was excitement, whether it was Christ is coming back soon. So we have to, to tell as many people. 
the stories start off as, as that. Hey, let me tell you about this guy, Jesus, because there were people alive who had those stories. But as you said, as, as this first generation starts to, to grow older, well, if we don't have Peter's account, how can we be sure? Mm-hmm. And so there was this, well, Christ is coming back. When he said soon, we, we, we assumed he meant sooner than like yeah. the, the apostles dying off. So we have to get these stories down. Yeah. And, and, uh, you know, imagine for a while you, you, you didn't have to have anything written down because if you had a question about what Jesus said, you just went and asked Peter. Yeah. Hey, Peter, what, when, what did Jesus say? Oh yeah, well, this is what happened. I was there. I stepped out of the boat. I mean, he could tell you these things, but uh, a second thing that started happening uh, related to that was the rise of some false teachings. Mm-hmm. People started teaching some things that weren't true. And like I said, they, they could, at the time, someone would teach something that's not true. And someone would say, you know, I don't think that's right. I'm going to go ask Peter, mm-hmm. but now Peter's dead. Right. So, so that also began to get them to a point of, we need to capture these stories. We tend to throw out the word heresy or heretic, either in jest or to say, I disagree with your theology. Mm-hmm. But really, when you look at where this term came from and how it was used in the early church, heresies revolved around, there were kind of two parts to it. There were, it was always about the nature of God and Christ. Mm-hmm. The early church heresies were things like, well, I can't imagine the God of the universe would actually have suffered. So he just seemingly had a human form. Yeah. Or, well, God created Jesus. Or they were they revolved around the nature of, of Christ. And the other thing to remember is that these were not mustache twirling villains. Yeah. Like, I'm going to destroy the church. These were people who went, I am wrestling with who this Jesus is. And I have, again, as you said, you know, we've talked about this in the season, your church may have a letter that Paul wrote and the gospel of Luke. And so these people are trying to reconcile. They don't have the whole canon. Mm -hmm. They have a, a, a limited experience. They have the stories that were shared with them by whoever started their church. They may, if they're lucky, have a copy of a gospel or have a copy of a letter that an apostle wrote to them. And so they're like, I think this is how Jesus works. And eventually that thought spreads and the rest of the church is like, ooh, no, because we have, you know, the canon is, de- is developing. Mm-hmm. And that's not developing as in, ooh, well, let's, we think this is good. But like the canon was recognized. It was not formed, if that makes sense. The church went, these are the books that God has inspired, not, and we'll get into that a little bit later. But yeah, yeah the, the early church her- heresies were, there wasn't burning at the stakes. There may have been like heated theological debate, but it really was around who do we think Christ really is and how can we make sure that people going forward understand that? And yeah. so that that's all tied up with the formation of the canon. And, and this is, uh, we won't get into this, but this it does bring up a little bit the issue of creeds mm-hmm. and why creeds, you know, why do you need a creed when you have the Bible? Well, ba- again, back then, uh, if you read most creeds, they, they seem, or at least the main ones, you know, like the Apostles' Creed or Nicene Creed, they seem to center on here is the person of Christ and here is what his work did. Yes. And we just want to make sure we are clear on that because even though they had, when they had the creeds, even though they had some of uh, scriptures there's still some, it's still confusing. Yeah, they didn't have 2000 yeah. years of theological reflection to go, oh, well, here's what we believe. Mm-hmm. At that time, they were like, we need something that can be easily recited, that can say, no matter what else you believe, if you believe this, you are part of the church. Sure. 
Um, I've been teaching Zane, like, and he knows it better than I do. I always get stumbled up on a couple of spots in the Nicene Creed, but Zane, like, we we say it every morning. I'm like, this this is what, like, when you boil everything else away, God created the world. Christ is God. Yeah. Here's why He came, and here's what we look forward to, and here's what's going on with the Holy Spirit. And like, we tend to tack a lot of things on, and it's amazing to me that the early church was like, whoa, 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 let's boil it down. Let's not add anything. Let's condense it to yeah. its its most purest form. If we are saying we are part of the church, here's what we believe. And and so you had, uh, you know, someone who said, well, I, gosh, I just, I can't believe that, that Christ was God and that he would suffer. He must've just seemed to suffer. And a person like John can say, I was standing right there. Mm-hmm. He suffered. He suffered. He suffered physically. I saw it. I saw the blood. I, I was yeah. there when that happened. Um, Jonathan Cleveland, pastor at Pulper Rock Church, uh, uses a phrase I like called theological triage, mm. where you start to talk about, hey, we, we need to prioritize some fi- some things. And we get in trouble, I think, with the word heresy when we take all of our beliefs and say they are all equally held. And that's what the creed was about. The creed was not saying, well, if you don't baptize in this way, then you right. are not part of the church. They said, Let, let's do some theological triage and say what is most important and what they landed on, like you said, it's the person and work of Christ. And so, so heresies were rising. Yep. Uh, the eyewitnesses were dying. Uh, one other thing that was happening also at this time is the persecution of the church began to start. Now we start seeing this in Acts, and as it increased, uh, it, you you would find yourself in trouble for the things that you believed or the things that you possessed. Like I know, for example, that uh, there are certain countries right now where um, owning a Bible could get you in trouble. Mm-hmm. You could get thrown in jail or, or worse for that. And so as people were being persecuted, they started asking this question, um, w- what's worth being persecuted for? I don't want to be persecuted for something that's not true. So we need to understand what is worth dying for. Right. And by the way, one of the things I think is one of the strongest uh, testaments to the resurrection of Christ is how many people were willing to die for that. Right. Well, I think, was it you who shared the Chuck Colson quote that uh, he was like, listen, in the the Watergate era, we couldn't, we had four people who knew what was going on and we couldn't keep a secret. Right. There's no way that 12 guys went to their death. Yeah. And, and dozens more. Yeah, and it never came out. And yeah. they never, I mean, at some point, you would think that someone who's being tortured would say, okay, you're right, I made it up. And they would only need one. Only need one guy only to need say one what guy to didn't say happen. Yep. So these events started happening, and and they were trying to figure out, so so what is it that is true? Now, um, I had this thought, like, say that it's 300 years in the future, which we know will be a post-apocalyptic scene, Yeah. you know, here, uh, buildings destroyed and mutants roaming the lands. And you come across in the New York library and you find uh, evidence of these old periodicals and you pick up this thing called USA Today and it has an article about an earthquake or an opinion page about uh, politics and you read that and then you pick up a, a copy of the New York Times and you read some sports scores and some things that are happening there. And then you pick up the weekly world news <laughs> and it tells you that uh, aliens have landed on this planet. Now you're looking at all three of these things going, wow, what a what a wild time back in 2019. How do I know which of these events were true and which are not? And so they, they had to come up with some kind of guiding principles or rules on mm-hmm. how will we decide what is true, what is not. Why is the Gospel Thomas of Thomas not in, but the Gospel of Mark is? Right. So uh, let's talk about what some of those rules were. Well, first of all, was it, was it being used, right? And specifically, this is a conversation that I had with a, an Orthodox buddy of mine, 
because they hold uh, they they hold additional books in the not as part of the canon of the New Testament, but but for teaching. There are some other ones, yeah. and I'm not Orthodox, so I, I'm not able to speak into that. But for you know, as he says it in studying this, one of their things was it wasn't just in use, but it was used in worship. It was like used in hmm. worship and teaching. So that's why all of the things we we have in the New Testament relate to specifically who Christ is as well. But as early as 140 AD, which is really not, I mean, within a hundred years of the events of the resurrection, you have lists like Marcion's list, which is some of the gospels and some of the epistles of Paul. And like, there is this here, here's what we're using. Are you using that? That these are things that, so they're in use and they're being used by people in the church who have authority. Right, who have the ability to say, yeah, this is this is what we're teaching from. So there's that. There's the fact that, hey, is it in use? If that something pops up and no one's heard of it and no one's using it, it's pretty easy to say, yeah, we're we're not going to look at. Yeah, that, that's that's a great point because it's not like a group of people got together and said, well, let let's start with a blank slate here and let's start writing on here. No, they they just said, what is everybody already mm-hmm. using? You know, everyone uses the the Book of Romans. Mm-hmm. Everyone's using that church. You know that that book. And it wasn't so much they were deciding what was in and what was out as they were just recognizing what does it seem like is already what's being used and has been used for decades yes. since it was written. Yep. So that's, that's one of the things I like that usefulness. Uh, a second one is a uh, proximity. Yes. Um, how close was the writing of this uh, book to the events that it describes? So for example, uh, you have uh, the book of Mark, which is written within, we think, 30 years from the time of Christ. Well, that gives it a lot of weight. Then you have another book that might have been written 90 years later. And you go, well, I don't think I don't think this is as trustworthy. I, I think I would rather trust from Mark, who actually interviewed someone who was there, versus the Gospel of Thomas, which I have right. no idea when that was written. Right. I think that was written 3rd or 4th century, 4th or 5th century. I mean, it was several hundred years later. And that leads into, so first of all, it's the difference between the gentleman who interviewed the people from D-Day uh, Ambrose. And, yeah, and me now writing a book about the Civil War. Uh, there's nobody, there's not been anyone who's been alive who fought in the Civil War for a long enough time that basically everything I get is second and third hand. But that leads to the other one because there were several books that were in use and were close, like the Shepherd of Hermas or the early church father letters. And one of the criteria for being part of what they considered the canon. And by the canon, we're also saying not just the measuring stick, but these are divinely inspired Mm -hmm. scriptures, like the scriptures of the Old Testament, which they were also using, was did an apostle write it or was part of the writing of it? So the shepherd of Hermas is great, but uh, they they know clearly that it was a second or third generation. And so they were like, as much as we use this, and as much as we believe that it is part of what we teach, it was not apostolic. So we're not going to include that as what the church says. We agree that these things agree about God and Christ. Yeah. Well, in, in, in our tradition, which I would describe, you know, Protestant or evangelical, or we, li- we like to put a lot of emphasis on, hey, the Bible's the authority. You know, the, the Bible's the authority. We're going to go to the Bible and not, not to a person. But you go back to a time when you didn't have the Bible, you, you had people where these, these apostles were mm-hmm. really authoritative because, because, again, they were there and because they had been chosen by Christ. So it wasn't just that they were eyewitnesses, but it was like, hey, this guy not only was there, Christ had tapped him personally. Right. In fact, when you get to Acts and they get to the point where they have to replace Judas, 
um, they have to go find another person who was there. They couldn't just pick somebody else because they wanted to really honor that, that presence thing. So the guiding principles were usefulness, were these books being used already? Uh, proximity, how close were they to the original sources? By the way, all 27 New Testament books were written within 60 years right. of the events of the death and resurrection of Christ. Which is an interesting point because we say Homer wrote the Iliad mm. and the Odyssey, and that was an oral tradition for thousands of years. We have the fact that we say, oh, Julius Caesar wrote Gaelic Wars. Those were the, the earliest copies we have of those are something like, I think, 100 or 200 years after Caesar. Yet we say Caesar wrote them. And so there's all this time where people are like, whoa, 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 we believe all that. But what about the Bible? And you're like, this was all written within decades. Yeah. And a very like when you think about it from a historical context, a very narrow window of time for it to be that the church said, if it's not in here, if this proximity doesn't exist, we're not going to hold that it is scripture. Yeah. That's rigor on a on a level that's sort of unheard of in the pre-modern world. It might be true. It might be helpful. But it doesn't fit in the measuring mm -hmm. stick. And that, the third one was the written by an apostle. But a fourth one is this word unity. Does this work fit with this with the unity of the other books that we're using mm -hmm. and the unity of the Bible we had at the time, which is the Old Testament, yes. or what they would call? So, for example, you talked about before the book of Hebrews. Yes. So Hebrews and Revelation were two. I think it was Revelation. I could be wrong. I'll fact check myself. And when we do Bible season two, um, yeah. past JM will either be vindicated or roasted. There's different church fathers there. And one side was like, we love Hebrews. And the other side was like, we don't know who he, who wrote Hebrews. And through discussion, what they said is, well, we don't know who wrote Hebrews, although I believe the Eastern church holds that Paul wrote it. And the other, the, some of the other church fathers is like, well, we understand that that's what you hold, but there's no, it's not like all the rest of Paul's letters that say, Paul, an apostle of Christ writing to you, Thomas. Mm -hmm. What they were able to say is, it fits the proximity criteria, it fits the usefulness criteria, and it fits the unity criteria. And so after much prayer and debate, Hebrews makes it in because it is in some ways the glue that holds the two mm. scriptures together. I think Hebrews, not including Hebrews, would have been, I mean, obviously God wanted it in there, right? So any speculation of it not being in there is merely, you know, fanciful on my part. But it really is. It says, hey, let me walk you through the Old Testament in a way that even Matthew doesn't and show you why Christ is the pinnacle of everything we have believed until now and now kind of this starting point going forward. And man, it's such a beautiful book. And I, I imagine the conversations that were happening, because this wasn't like a weekend. They got no. away and they said, but the, the ongoing debate where someone would say, but but look, we've always said it has to be written by an apostle. We don't know who wrote Hebrews, so we can't include it. And other people are like, no, but we've also said that it has to uh, have this unity and it has to be useful. And everyone's using this book because it so clearly recapitulates all this stuff and it connects all this stuff. And so, you know, this debate and this discussion, and finally they, they just came to a point. And I, I, I know... Um, I know that God is guiding this process, so the Holy Spirit's involved. We have to trust that God's doing this. I, I know they were also using a lot of reason. Mm -hmm. This makes sense, you know, in, in this conversation. Because a lot of times we like to use the phrase sola scriptura, you know, that we're only guided by the Bible. Well, th they didn't have the Bible. They were, they were having to rely upon 
uh, things like tradition, what's being used, mm -hmm. um, the, the things we've been talking about. So they kind of came together. And from basically this point forward, they said, these are the 27 books. There are other things out there that are useful and helpful, but these are going to be inside the measuring stick. Well, and, and let's, you know, also pointing out, yes, they used, they used reason, but really from what we can, we can tell Hebrews was the only book that seemed to be, do we, or don't we? The canon was very clearly recognized at that point. So people, somebody might be like, well, what about, I'm, I keep going back to the Shepherd of Hermits, right? What about this one? Uh, well, it doesn't hit these criteria. All right. Oh, you're right. What about this one? Oh, well, we like that one, but it doesn't fit these criteria. Mm -hmm. So it came down to essentially 127th, just do we or don't we? Not... Well, as you said, like, let's whiteboard it out and put everything that talks about God. All right, let's start making check marks off. One of the things that you just said about they're useful, we're using them, but they're not inspired. They're not part of the canon. You may have heard, dear listener, about the Apocrypha. And so I feel like this could be a, a good time to discuss that. That's where the mutants roam the earth. And That's right. Yeah. At the end times. And then there's the post-Apocrypha. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so... Uh, Evangelical tradition holds to 66 books of the Bible and other traditions like the Catholic Church or the, uh, the Orthodox Church hold to more. And what's really interesting, at least about the ones I've, and again, I can't speak to Orthodoxy, but I can speak to Catholicism, that uh, so basically what happens is the Apocrypha are books of the Old Testament. They're not books of the New Testament that were considered useful for teaching and were part of the teaching of the early church. And so you have this, you have this guy, St. Jerome. And I, uh, I love his story because I don't think that Jerome had any idea what he was doing, not any, the impact that it would have. Yeah. Right. So this, this archbishop says, Hey, Jerome, you speak Hebrew, you speak Greek. What I'd love for you to do is translate the Bible into Latin into the common language so that we can all read it. It was called the Vulgate, the vulgar tongue. And here are the books that I want you to include. I want you to include the, you know, the Old Testament scriptures and the New Testament scriptures. And Jerome had a sticking point. He's like, well, okay, when it comes to the Old Testament canon, some of these books aren't recognized as canon by the whole of the church. And the archbishop's like, well, here in, in, in my archbishophood, we, we, we do these. And so these are things like there's, there's one Psalm, there's um, two really great chapters of Daniel um, where basically it's CSI Babylon mm. and uh, Daniel is investigating the, the bread in the temple of, of Bel and the, uh, these two Jewish elders basically come upon a beautiful Jewish widow and say, you either, you either sleep with us or we're going to tell everyone that you slept with us and then you'll be killed. And Daniel interviews each of them independently and they both get, they don't, they can't corroborate their stories. And so Daniel's like, well, obviously you're both liars and she is telling the truth. And then like the book of Maccabees, and there's some other ones in there, uh, like Esdras and things like that. But basically, Jerome says, here's my, my problem with this. The church where he is part of says, no, we want these included. And so Jerome, at the start of each book, puts a little introduction. And he says, hey, this book is, part, is considered divinely inspired. This book is considered useful for teaching and instruction. Flash forward a thousand years. Jerome's Bible is the Bible of the church for a thousand years. And... 
um, we get to Luther and Luther is doing his translations. And so he cuts the scripture down to 66 because he's looking at, he's looking at the Bible and he's looking at these introductions that Jerome has. And he's like, well, if I'm going to say sola scriptura, I can't have books in the canon that are not sola scriptura or in the Bible that are not sola scriptura. As both sides were looking for ways to distinguish themselves at that point, the Catholic Church went through and sort of scrubbed off all of Jerome's introductions. And so the Protestants are like, well, we have sola scriptura. And the Catholic Church is like, well, Martin Luther's followers aren't playing with a full deck. And really it comes down to the church for 1,500 years said, hey, these books are part of our tradition and they are useful for instruction. There are good things about God but they are not considered divinely inspired. And so if you hear the words apocrypha or if you download a Bible that has 12 extra books, I think is what it is, um, they're not heretical. In fact, one of the things I love is if you go back and read through the book of Maccabees, one, you'll understand Hanukkah a little bit better. Hmm. But two, there's this tension throughout the book of Maccabees. Does God help those who stand up or does God help those who endure? which is something that is wow. part of both the Old Testament and the New Testament, this tension between the call that we have to want to rise up and have God bless our actions, which he does, and the call to say, I am supposed to stay the course and do what God tells me even in the face of other things. And there's some beautiful stories in there. There's some great funny things about uh, Daniel. Um, also, it comes down to like, you know, are they translating from the Septuagint? Were they translating from the Hebrew? Uh, there's another one. I don't know if you encountered this in, I was always told that uh, Esther is the book of the Bible where God is not mentioned. Right. That's only true if you don't read the book of Esther from the Apocrypha, which is translated from the Septuagint, where he's mentioned all the time. Hmm. It, don't be intimidated or don't be like afraid of somebody who has these extra books in in their copy of what they read because the church still holds, hey, there are truths about God in here, but we're not, you know, we're not considering them divinely inspired. So, But they help us. They do. They help us so much. And um, you can walk into a Christian bookstore here in Colorado Springs and see thousands and thousands of books that we don't consider inspired, but, but we feel like these are helpful. These right. are useful. And it's helpful to remember, as we said early on, the Bible is one story. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of the things that we do, and, and this isn't bad, but I think sometimes we can miss the point. You know, when we go to church or we study the Bible, we, we tend to really study it as, well, I'm just going to study the book of Matthew and I'm going to really dive in deep and I'm going to, or I'm going to preach a sermon on uh, these five verses. And um, that's great to do, but it's always important to step back and go, what is the bigger story? The bigger story is about how uh, God created his people how we ran away from him and how he's putting this family back together. And, yeah. and that's the whole story. And so the, thing, the, the events you're describing, that, that's a part of that story. Yeah. It's helpful to know. Hey, we're going to press pause on this conversation right now and pick it up again in the next episode. I hope that today's sitting at the table with us has sparked some different thinking for you and maybe some different things for you to explore or even generate conversations with others around you around another table. But we welcome you to come back with us next episode as we'll pick this up then. <laughs>